You're listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We will be joined by cancer experts to discuss blood cancer diagnosis, treatment, side effects management, and the importance of clinical trials. They will share their experience in treating patients and discuss strategies for optimal patient care. Let's get the conversation started. Welcome to Treating Blood Cancers, an LLS podcast series for professionals. I'm Dr. Ken Miller. I'm a medical oncologist and also an LLS volunteer. And I'd like to thank uh, all of you so much for joining us for this episode. Today, we'll be discussing types and diagnostic tests to identify T-cell lymphoma, goals of treatment, approved and also emerging treatment options, including immunotherapy and clinical trials and strategies to manage the disease and side effects. I would just mention as a oncology generalist, I think myself and many community oncologists treat a lot of patients with lymphoma, but in general, dissemination of knowledge in terms of T-cell lymphoma has generally been less. And so it's very exciting today. We have Dr. Stephen Horowitz, who's a member of the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, an attending physician at Memorial Hospital, a professor of medicine, as well as the Wild Cornell Medical College in New York. Steve, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks, Ken. It's really my pleasure to be here. So let's start out with that introduction in mind. I love your sort of broad view to really sort of teach us about T-cell lymphoma, how common is it, and when you see a new patient with T-cell lymphoma, how do you classify and subclassify those patients and their diagnoses to start to make a plan on what to do for them? Yeah, no, those are great questions. And, you know, I think I work in a strange environment in that it's a big cancer hospital and about 80% of my practice is T-cell lymphoma. So, you know, I think we understand that we're in a sort of abnormal environment. But whenever we see a new patient, I kind of start with a little bit of suspicion, meaning these are very rare diseases. Do we really want to make sure we have the diagnosis right? I think sometimes with T-cell lymphomas, inflammatory diseases, other things can sort of mimic that. So we really want to make sure we have really good pathology review. Many of these, but not all these lymphomas are aggressive. So is the patient sick? Is it behaving like a cancer? And then it's just a really detailed analysis of the cells. Are they abnormal looking? Are they abnormal in phenotype? You know, one of the things we see in T-cell lymphomas is that they develop this sort of antigen aberrancy. So they will acquire abnormal antigens, upregulate some, downregulate some. So you kind of look at that constellation, a lot of phone calls with the pathologist. And then more and more, we're using uh, a lot of our molecular tools. So we'll look for T-cell clonality, remembering that clonality, you know, in and of itself, is not diagnostic of cancer and T-cell lymphomas. We do see some benign clonal disorders, but it certainly helps. And then looking at the mutations within the cancer cells, we have certain types now that we know sort with certain mutations, uh, certain types of T-cell lymphomas. So really trying to get that whole basket of information, connecting with what's going on with the patient, and then trying to arrive at a diagnosis of T-cell lymphoma and then work on the specific subtype of the 29 or 30 subtypes we have. So let me ask you, in B-cell lymphoma, or at least in you know, lymphoma, people will talk about a, an MLUS, you know, monoclonal lymphocytosis of undetermined significance. Typically, I've thought of that as a B-cell process. Can patients also have T-cell MLUSs? It's not that it's a defined entity, and sometimes we think we'll see these low-grade things that we'll call, or our pathologists will call lymphoproliferations. We're not sure it's malignancy. So there's no official name for that. But we do sometimes see as people age a reduced T-cell repertoire. So sometimes in that sense, you can get 
oligo or pseudoclonality, and you want to make sure in those settings that you're not sort of overcalling something because there's a small clonal T-cell population. Sometimes we'll talk about a clinical pathologic disconnect, like this would be an aggressive lymphoma, but the person looks fine. I saw a person recently who had thrombocytopenia, and as part of the work of their primary care doctor, sent T-cell gene rearrangements and identified a clone in the blood, and then they were sent to me. So that's a molecular test that amplifies DNA. Can we refer that to any abnormal population? And the answer with looking at flow cytometry blood was no. There may have been a small clone there, but it was probably an artifact of that test. There's something called primer bias in the T-cell rearrangements where certain uh, primers will overamplify. So as you're going through that PCR process, you can almost create the appearance of a clone even when none is there. So there isn't that thing, but we do sometimes see people with small populations of clonal T-cell that we don't think rise to the level of malignancy or lymphoma. Right. You know, how often do you see, I, I should be disinterested in your own anecdotal experience, patients that are sent to you with a diagnosis of T-cell lymphoma where it's not, where it's either B-cell or it's not malignant? Yeah. You know, it happens from time to time. I'd say we see that once a month, not every week. It's most common in people with minimal skin lesions. So part of my practice is cutaneous T-cell lymphomas and sometimes sort of early rashes or drug reactions or even a nasty spider bite can look like a lymphoma or have cells abnormal enough that someone renders that diagnosis. So mostly in, in those patients. And then there's a group of people with LGL. So again, we have these techniques to find very small cell populations or identify abnormal populations. So some patients with a low volume of large granular lymphocytic leukemia or a reactive LGL will come to us and we might step away and say, well, you know, there are some abnormal cells here, but we don't think this crosses the bar that this is truly a lymphoma or leukemia. Yeah. In B-cell lymphoma, I truly do realize that the thinking has changed, but but when I am thinking about patients with B-cell, I'm thinking about low and intermediate grade and high grade in terms of biology. Is there a useful construct for thinking about T-cell lymphomas and distinguishing them? It's similar, but they just don't quite map as well to that framework. But I think you can extrapolate a little from how we think about B-cell lymphomas historically, meaning we have a group of relatively aggressive T-cell lymphomas they're all rare, but these would be the more common subtypes like what we call PTCL NOS, angioimmunoblastic or anaplastic large cell lymphoma, where we think we're treating with curative intent. Those are by and large aggressive systemic diseases, so they would fall under the rubric of what was an intermediate grade or an aggressive lymphoma, and we treat them with curative intent. We can you know, talk about what that means. And then there's another group of relatively more indolent or chronic processes, like many of the cutaneous T-cell lymphomas, like LGL, where we don't treat with curative intent. They may not need therapy, or the treatments may be largely palliative. So I think we think about it like that in terms of treatment strategy, in terms of are we really going to do a maximalist approach with chemotherapy, possibly stem cell transplant to give this patient the best chance of cure, or is this something that we really want to manage over time, partly because the disease aggressiveness doesn't merit that aggressive therapy? And also, like in, in low-grade B-cell lymphomas, those intensive therapies, while they work for those more chronic diseases, are not curative. So it's just not the right approach for most of those patients. Let me ask you also about biology, and I'm sure it, it varies, but in very broad terms, I personally tend to think about cancer or especially about lymphoma as either diseases of proliferation where there's too many cells dividing and growing or problems with apoptosis or both. Looking at T-cell lymphomas, is there a way to use that framework or does it not apply? I don't think it exactly applies in the sense that it's the biology is as well worked out. Like a lot of our highly proliferative tumors may have 
at Baron Sealing through Jack Stat, so they're going very fast that way, or even some of the more aggressive lymphomas in the follicular helper T-cell lymphoma or angiominoblastic T-cell lymphoma, maybe more mutations or problems with you know, epigenetics and gene expression. The sort of true defect in apoptosis and targeting apoptosis has so far not been a, a super effective strategy for T-cell lymphomas. But I think you can think about that conceptually, that there are a group that where the disease is not aggressive and proliferative, but more persistent and hanging around. And that would be a good paradigm for a lot of cutaneous lymphomas where you sort of over time accumulate the disease, but not at a quick rate versus some of the other ones where we might see proliferative fractions of 40%, 60%, 70%. So those would be more in line in terms of a growth rate, like a diffuse large B cell lymphoma. Right. Is that prognostic, you know, the growth fraction, the KI-67? When you're thinking of taking care of a new patient, what are some of the, and please feel free to pick any of the diseases or several of them that you treat, but how do you look at prognosis? What are the factors you're thinking about? So a lot of it is subtype, and a lot of it is the diagnosis drives the prognosis overwhelmingly. So our most common systemic ones, PTCLNOS, AITL, anaplastic large cell lymphoma, those are uh, diseases that historically with combination chemotherapy, full course chemotherapy, we maybe only would cure 20 or 30%. So when you're looking at that group overall, and we could talk about some of the newer approaches, it's a little hard when your baseline is that low to really separate out things like stage, age, typical IPI factors matter a little, but the prognosis and the chemosensitivity is what overwhelmingly drives it. We don't have really good stratification like in diffuse large cell lymphoma where there's some very favorable patients. You know, most of our patients from the get-go are either an intermediate prognosis or a poor prognosis. So our strategies have really, by and large, been increasing therapy, adding to standard, enhancing therapy, rather than, you know, a true group of patients that we can really minimize therapy because they do well with less. We don't exactly have that group. But by and large, the anaplastic large cell lymphoma patients always did a little better. And now with incorporation of brentuximab, they do a little more better. So that's a group where where we are now curing probably the majority of patients with combination chemotherapy with brentuximab, sometimes adding a high-dose therapy and stem cell transplant at first remission. And then PTCL-NOS and angiominoblastic T-cell lymphoma, the treatments you know have improved a little for those, but there's been no sort of major breakthrough where we're now curing the majority of those patients, kind of regardless of age, stage, LDH, things like that. So let me ask you, I want to go back to rentuximab issue, because honestly, I find that really interesting. The rituxan added to the benefit of CHOP, and my recall is about a 10% improvement in survival. It sounds like rentuximab, it's much more than that. Is that fair to say? Yeah, at least for, you know, the large randomized study that we did really took all types, but it was really heavily weighted towards anaplastic large cell lymphoma. So, of course, rentuximab targets CD30. Anaplastic large cell lymphoma, the cells are all strongly CD30 expressing. So in that whole study, again, driven mostly by ALCL, more than doubled the PFS, 30% increase uh, in overall survival, you know, relative to what we saw with CHOP alone. So that was really a big step forward for those diseases. The benefit probably applies to the whole subset of T-cell lymphomas that express CD30. It's a little less clear if we look at from that study like PTCL, NOS, and AITL because they're much smaller and, and you can't really make statistical conclusions. But it looks like you know it really bumped up the PFS, bumped up the overall survival, and didn't significantly add to toxicity. So at least for that group of patients, that's been a big step forward. It hasn't cured everybody, but it's been a big advance and really fundamentally changed our frontline therapy, at least for those patients.
I'd love to get your prediction. You know, what do you see on the, for let's say a patient with a T-cell, large cell lymphoma, the ALCL, Brentuxmab has made a big difference. What are you partnering it with? And also, even more so, I'd love to hear, what do you think will be next if you had to make some predictions? Yeah, so for anaplastic large cell lymphoma, the study combined it with CHP, so CHOP, dropping the vincristine so there was no additive neurotoxicity, and, and that's kind of moved things up. There's some other studies going on trying to sort of um, maximize the chemotherapy a little more, adding like a CHOP atopicide backbone to brentuximab. So I think with those patients who tend to be chemosensitive, we're in the realm of sort of adding brentuximab to more intensive combination chemotherapy, and that right now is giving us the best cure rates. Once we get outside of there, you know, the biology is starting to unlock a little bit, you know, send some clues as a little bit to therapy. So another big basket of lymphomas are what we, uh, T-cell lymphomas are what we call follicular helper T-cell lymphomas. So these are lymphomas derived from germinal center T-cells. This is angioimmunoblastic T-cell lymphoma, and then this newer described entity called follicular helper T-cell lymphoma. And they really sort as a specific cell of origin. They almost always have mutations and epigenetic modifiers, frequently develop on the background of clonal hematopoiesis. So we see TED2, DNMT3A, sometimes IDH mutation. And a lot of the new drugs in T-cell lymphoma happened to fall under the epigenetic category. They're epigenetic therapies. And when we look, and again, T-cell lymphoma, we're often trying to extract some information from a small subset, but it looks like things like histone deacetylase inhibitors, demethylating agents like azacitidine, EZH inhibitors. There's some data just presented uh, this past week at EHA with valimetastat with an EZH1-2 inhibitor. It looks like those treatments work in T-cell lymphoma, but may be particularly potent in these follicular helper T-cell lymphomas. So kind of subsetting off targeting that biology, and then maybe trying to recapitulate either what was done with brentuximab, which is adding those drugs to chemotherapy, which so far has had mixed success. A big study out of Europe presented ASH last year added romadepsin to CHOP overall. There was no clear benefit, but some intriguing data in the angioimmunoblastic subset. There's some other attempts adding azacitidine to CHOP, and it looks like maybe that group can develop some more subtype-specific therapy. Other groups are saying, well, chemotherapy is relatively ineffective and putting together some sort of novel combinations. There's a recent uh, paper out of Columbia look, adding azacitidine to romadepsin that in a small study looked particularly active, again, in angioimmunoblastic T-cell lymphoma. There's some data adding romadepsin to lenalidomide, particularly active in angioimmunoblastic T-cell lymphoma. So that group, you know, sort of understanding the biology, correlating that a little bit with drugs that have more activity, that's kind of moving in one direction. And hopefully that will translate into better results for those patients as we understand that better. And then we're getting left with these smaller subsets where the biology is less well understood or we have less active therapy, you know, and that's sort of the next group that some of the new drugs are being looked at or that we need to tackle. So I imagine it must be difficult with somewhat rare diseases. I mean, I know you see a lot of these patients, but to do randomized trials, is that a barrier in the sense of to moving the field forward? Yeah, I think requiring randomized studies is a barrier. That's our end goal. And the commitments of that are huge time and money. So I think right now what we've seen is the randomized studies are mostly getting reserved for when a strategy really looks promising. So Brentuximab, Vidotin, 86% response rate in, in relapsed anaplastic large cell lymphoma, good data combination. So that's where sort of the worldwide community and the sponsors invest the time and money in doing that. You know, and, and that's where I think we may not get incremental benefits. So we and others, we have a lot of collaboration with early phase studies. You're looking for signals 
try to expand that signal, usually into a phase two, not a randomized study, and then maybe take the most active of those signals and then try to really prove that that really improves progression for your overall survival. Today, we really just have the brentuximab study is the only randomized study showing an overall survival benefit. So like you said, it's hard to do in a rare disease. So I think you have to pick your spots. But what encourages me is there's a lot of early data that just some of that has to rise to that level uh, for us to really improve prognosis. So a lot of work to do, but certainly a lot of excitement in terms of new therapies. So let me ask you about, again, new therapies. What's happening in terms of, is there any role for checkpoint inhibitors or other immune therapies? How about CAR-T therapy? Does it apply to, to this field? Yeah, so immune therapy is sort of super interesting to us, but also complicated. As you all know, most of the successful immune therapies have been harnessing good T-cells in one way or another to fight cancer. And getting good T-cells to fight bad T-cells is just a little bit of a more complicated problem. So I think a really good example is checkpoint inhibitors. We've seen very good responses in NK T-cell lymphoma, which is a rare EBV-driven lymphoma, where the response rate in relapsed patients may be 50%, and, and we're doing some upfront studies. We've seen good responses in cutaneous T-cell lymphoma, mycosis fungoides, where there's a phase two study shows almost a 40% response rate and some really long durability. And then we've seen other cases where there's hyperprogression. So a small study done in HTLB1-associated lymphoma, three patients developed very aggressive disease and died, and that study was stopped early. And there's other reports. So with T-cell checkpoint inhibitors, it's been a little more complicated uh, understanding which subtypes it's work and which subtypes it might really result in detriment or hyperprogression. So that's been tough. And I think until we can kind of understand who's at risk for hyperprogression, it's going to be hard to study those drugs broadly. So there's some early data looking at some of the anti-CD47 strategies, so maybe stimulating macrophages through an anti-CD47 antibody, or there's some SERP-alpha decoy receptors, which interact with that don't-eat-me pathway. And maybe that's a way to get at immune therapy for T-cell lymphomas without running the risk of directly stimulating tumor cells. The cell therapy thing, again, like as you know, in lymphoma, it's really a game changer for DLBCL, probably mantle cell, probably follicular lymphoma, multiple myeloma. And those studies are just very early in T-cell lymphoma. You know, kind of the nuts and bolts are autologous CAR T-cells, which seem to be the most potent killers. The risk is long-term T-cell aplasia because those cells can proliferate and persist, kind of like in CD19 CARs, patients are B-cell depleted, you know, long-term or forever. So some of the early CAR T-cells with some groups like at Baylor, looking at CD5 CAR T-cells, they're using allotransplant as a backup, the idea to try to induce a remission but understand that we might need to get rid of those autologous uh, CAR T-cells. And there's some very early data on activity there. I think other groups are just starting to look at uh, other uh, cell therapies, so allogeneic CAR-Ts, NK-CARs, myeloid CARs, or cells that wouldn't persist in the patient long-term to see if you can get enough tumor killing, but not dealing with long-term T-cell aplasia. And then there's issues of fratricide in the production that some groups are looking at by knocking out certain antigens. There's always a small risk in autologous CAR-T that you might transfect a tumor cell, what that might mean. So it's pretty complicated. There's enough really good groups working on that that I I think we're going to learn in the next couple years, is this a promising strategy, and then figure out how to fine-tune it. But I would say in my mind, very interesting, very exciting, but the jury's still out on whether that's going to be as successful as it has been in B-cell lymphomas. 
So I also take care of patients with solid tumors and use a lot of checkpoint inhibitors. I have to ask you, what theory with hyperprogression? Because we do see this in solid tumor patients as well. Any thoughts about just a fascinating side effect? Why in T-cell diseases might you have that? Yeah, so a lot of our tumor cells may express PD-1 or PDL one and at least it was shown in a model that it may act as a tumor suppressor, and then when you unblock that checkpoint, you stimulate, you turn on tumor cells, you turn on proliferation, or you're directly stimulating, you're directly activating the tumor cell and driving this high rate of growth. So it's been sort of best worked out in indolent forms of HTLV-1-associated lymphoma where that was seen. And then it's been sort of anecdotal in other types of T-cell lymphoma and not exactly well understood why that particular patient would have had hyperprogression. But I think the thought is you're directly stimulating the tumor cells. Right. So let me ask you in terms of toxicities, because you're dealing with a different patient population and the drugs, there's a lot of similarities and a lot of differences. Any sort of sets of side effects that you see that, again, may be the same as other patients with lymphoma or unique? Yeah, I think where we see it a lot is there's a persistence to the T-cell lymphomas where I think in Hodgkin lymphoma, to a certain extent in some of the B-cell lymphomas, even the ones that are not cured, you get this treatment, remission, period of time off therapy, relapse, treatment, remission, period of time off therapy. And in the T-cell lymphomas, there tends to be this persistence. So the strategies are often continuous therapy until progression or intolerance. So often you're dealing with the effects of being on therapy a long time. And certainly things like romadepsin, like an HDAC inhibitor, can cause you know fatigue, food doesn't taste good, brentuximabidotin can cause some cumulative neuropathy. Nonetheless, controlling the disease is sort of the big goal because that keeps people alive and safe. So in that sense, we do a lot of, for patients who are doing well, but on long-term therapy, certainly off clinical trials, we do a lot of dose adjustments, changing intervals, reducing doses. But if recognizing that the drug works and it's going to be an intermediate or long-term strategy, because sometimes long-term means months to a year or two, you know, not a decade, how can we sort of make this as tolerable as possible during that period, believing that the patient probably needs to stay on therapy to control their disease? Right, right. A very quick question about brentuxabab because, yeah, toxicity in terms of neuropathy is a big problem. When do you decide to, you know, we, I think most of us were taught with Christine, when you stop when you can't do your buttons. How do you handle brentuxabab and that common side effect? Yeah, so I think that that falls into kind of two general categories. If we're using it as part of upfront therapy with curative intent, then the big goal is to cure people. So in the studies, it was grade two, which again is having some functional impairment. But if we're only going to give six cycles and six doses, we kind of want to leave the patient healthy and functional, but we know there's an end point. So you kind of do your best to push through it and try to, as best you can, keep that full dose, thinking that if you cure the person, then they have months and years for that neuropathy to recover, and mostly it improves or resolves. You know, I think the other situation is when we're using that drug chronically, and because we don't tend to get long remissions off therapy, we see this a lot, for instance, in mycosis fungoides, where the response rate to brentuximab is quite good. It was uh, almost 70% in a randomized study. So we do see good responses. But in that disease, you really want to continue the drugs long term. So if they're just getting grade one or starting to increase, and we think this is going to be a long term treatment, we would reduce the dose, we might extend the interval. We're doing some clinical trials, looking at even lower doses and schedules, thinking that in a chronic lymphoma like mycosis fungoides, giving 9 or 12 or 16 cycles is beneficial but not long-term. And are there strategies where we could really try to extend uh, the benefit or the duration a patient could tolerate that drug? But it's almost always some mechanism of reduced dose over time to try to get there.
Well, so finally, I wanted to ask you just about patient communication and side effects and how is, in terms of your work and your, and your team, but how's the whole team involved in terms of nursing and advanced practice nursing and nutrition and social work? Yeah, those are great questions. And I think, again, whenever we're talking about a rare or a chronic cancer, you know, supporting our patients, communicating with them as best we can through that course is, is really critical. I'm really fortunate to have a fantastic team of nurses, nurse practitioners, APPs, pharmacists, and a lot of it is really frequent communication, frequent checking in with the patient, having them sit down with the patient, just spend a little time, how they're doing things come out. I find particularly on clinical trials, you know, the patient, they have a vested interest in doing well and not having side effects, and they may hold something back from me that if the nurse is just sitting with them spending time, you may hear a little more and then and then we can all talk about that. Yep. And then early integration of integrative medicine, you know, our pain management team, but really trying to sort of bring those resources to the patient, you know, and provide them as much support as we can, which is, of course, as you know, often a really difficult time. Absolutely. I also wanted to ask you about clinical trials. What are some of the trials that, that you're most excited about? Yeah, no, thank you for asking that. We need new therapies and trials, I think, really in our practice provide extra options for patients. So, you know, I think in terms of uh, new medications that are exciting, there's registrational uh, trials going on with Duvalisib, which is a PI3 kinase inhibitor. So that's a phase two that's available nationally and internationally. There's the EZH12 inhibitor valimedostat that I mentioned that is just initiating a worldwide registrational, again, a phase two study. And those are both oral drugs being studied for relapsed or refractory uh, peripheral T-cell lymphomas. The cooperative groups are very soon going to be initiating a randomized phase two study looking at some novel upfront combinations, combining either duvalisib, that PI3 kinase inhibitor with a chemotherapy backbone, or azacitidine with a chemotherapy backbone based on some preliminary data that that may add to uh, responses. And then there's a number of early immunotherapy. So a lot of groups have early studies in cell therapy, like we talked about, or immune strategies. And those are often in the you know, one or two institution first in human or phase one setting, but those are really becoming more available in different at different centers. So I think that's an exciting area sort of to look for for your patients or patients might want to access. Terrific. Thank you. Actually, really good to know about. This has been a wonderful, wonderful session. And I want to thank Dr. Steve Horowitz, again, who is a member of the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center and an attending physician at Memorial Hospital. Steve, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It's my pleasure. I'd like to thank all of you for listening to this very informative uh, episode on T-cell lymphoma and for listening of all of our healthcare professional continuing education activities, podcasts, and healthcare professional resources. Please visit lls.org slash CE. For any questions or to refer a patient, please contact our Information Resource Center by calling 800-955-4572. Information specialists provide personalized one-on-one support help patients learn about their disease, treatments, financial, and other support resources. And I encourage all of you to sign up to receive notification of future podcast episodes by subscribing at treatingbloodcancers.org. LLS also offers a series of podcasts for patients and families at lls.org slash podcast. We look forward to you joining us on future episodes. 
Thanks for listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We can be found on iTunes and other podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.treatingbloodcancers.org and provide your suggestions for future topics. Visit our archive section on our website for other great podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and on Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And access our professional continuing education activities by visiting lls.org CE. Let's keep the conversation going. Until next time.